Chicago's northern suburbs are known for many things. John Hughes movies, the Baha'i Temple of North America, Nail Station Great Lakes, Jack Benny, and a thriving Jewish community. Our special guest this week, Congressman Brad Schneider from Illinois' 10th Congressional District, will talk about the state of partisanship on Capitol Hill, Iran, anti-Semitism, and how a Jewish lay leader became a member of Congress. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. Welcome back to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Rich, welcome back. We're finally through the holidays. We are. We are. Let's call this the post-holiday special edition. Yes, the post-holiday special edition. There's a lot going on. Unfortunately, a lot of it not so great. Um, We have a new book out from former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, where he dishes on a lot of the inside baseball with congressional Democrats and what he thinks they're really thinking. Uh, Wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Uh, I think that this is uh, a big book with a big splash, uh, just in time for an Israeli election, where I think there's a bit of a tailwind uh, for the former Prime Minister. Uh, there's obviously a lot of factors in the air right now of how this election plays out, uh, but I am rather bullish on Bibi's chances of a comeback right now, depending on turnout in certain communities, turnout uh, for his faithful in the Likud, turnout uh, being low in other areas. A lot of apathy right now, given sort of the redux, 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 redux times five uh, for this uh, merry-go-round that never ends of elections. But uh, it is possible that uh, the right-wing coalition comes out with 61, 62 votes. And while there are no second acts in American politics, there certainly are in Israeli politics. Fourth and fifth, and fifth then and there's multiple generations that get, that get opportunities too. Yeah. So not Day that that's never happened here in America, you know, the, the Bush family and others. Yes, anyways. anyways. Um, a couple of not great developments uh, since last we talked. Uh, you have the artist formerly known as Kanye, now known as Yee, a cultural icon in America, the fashion designer, really going all in using some of the worst kinds of anti-Semitic tropes uh, on on Instagram uh, and Twitter and being suspended from the platform, then doing this really out there interview with Tucker Carlson, then tries to walk it back when he goes on with Piers Morgan, but doesn't really. And it's troubling. It's troubling, and it's troubling for a couple of reasons. And I'll be on the soapbox for a second here. One, he is a cultural icon, and and you know brands are just kind of shrugging their shoulders, not really doing all that much about it. Brands that work with him, and two, for a party that claims to be sort of very pro-Israel, very pro-community of faith, uh, for one of the 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 strongest, most influential men in the party, and Tucker Carlson. To give agency, to give a platform to this guy, it's 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 mind boggling. It, it's all mind boggling. I, I I honestly do not understand how the reaction to Kanye West has been 
so soft compared to past comments made by celebrities uh, and other other people who have been in the entertainment industry, maybe on TV personalities, um, in the music industry. I mean, it just it doesn't make any sense to me. It, it should be widely condemned. What he says is horrific. When he tries to clean it up, he says it in more anti-Semitic horrific things. Uh, there was also a podcast he didn't follow up where he tries to defend himself. And it's just, again, more anti-Semitism being spewed. So uh, you're right. Uh, I'm, I'm with you on the soapbox. It doesn't, by the way, I didn't even know he was going by Yee until this controversy. That was new. That was new information for me. Yeah, no, no, I, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, well, in one positive development, and then I think we should get to our guests. Uh, I'm gonna. I want to give a shout out to another podcast. I know it's not something we normally do on this podcast, but you'll you'll figure it out in a minute why. Um, our friends over or my friends over at Global Strategy Group run a really cool podcast called Staffer, where they interview people like you and I who have been staffers in government at some level, and then gone on to do interesting things outside of government. Uh, and this week, uh, the new episode fe- features Hildy Curick, founder of founder and partner of Artemis Strategies, also known as my wife. Uh, and she gave a pretty cool interview. And uh, as are you married side, to Hildy or to Artemis Strategies? Um, I'm married to both. I'm married to okay, both. Okay. Um, right, but I should tell question. you also at the end of the podcast, they have uh, each guest nominate somebody for the Staffer Hall of Fame that the host wants to have built on them all. And uh, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but is it me? You may, it's me. You may know. Yeah, you may know the person who gets nominated by Hildy Curick for the Staffer Hall of Fame. Uh, on the podcast. So shout out to our friends over at Global Strategy Group and the Staffer Podcast. When you're done listening to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast this week is a great one to continue on the fun. So I want to get want to get that, that that shameless plug in there. But what, on for guest, I, I don't know. Was it me? It's me. Well, you'll have to listen. It. You'll have to listen uh, okay. and find out. All right. Okay. All right. Let's move on. <laughs> Brad Schneider represents Illinois' 10th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives, where he's serving his fourth term. He's a member of the House Committee on Ways and Means and the House Committee on Foreign Affairs and was a Jewish communal lay leader before that. And we're so excited to have him on. Congressman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Okay, for the non-Illinoisans who subscribe to our podcast, a.k.a. people who are not Rich Goldberg. Tell us a little bit about the 10th District of Illinois. Where is it? What's the Jewish community like there? Oh, sure. It's uh, So the 10th District of Illinois are the no- northern suburbs uh, of Chicago. Uh, it runs uh, in its new uh, configuration uh, after the 2020 census. It starts uh, in the middle of Wilmette, runs through Kenilworth, Winnetka, Glencoe. That's the Cook County part of the district, Northbrook. Uh, and then has a large part of uh, Lake County, the county north of, of Cook, uh, which is Highland Park, uh, Deerfield. I mentioned those towns because in all those towns, there's a, a very sizable Jewish community, also some of Buffalo Grove, Long Grove. Uh, this is a community that has deep roots, uh, deep roots in Chicago, synagogues that have uh, 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 been around for 100 years or more, uh, and a community that's uh, very much connected to its Jewish identity. Uh, Jewish values, and, and in, in many respects, uh, uh, very closely connected to the Jewish state of Israel. So, Congressman, we all watched in horror the Highland Park shooting. Uh, good friends of mine were on the next block with their kids. Um, this is your district. You were there. Tell, tell us about that day. Yeah, it's not just my district. It's my home. I live in Highland Park now. And 
Um, Fourth of July is a celebration of, of the nation's birthday in, in our district. It's, uh, it's a big deal. I always do five parades, uh, Vernon Hills, Highland Park, Deerfield, Glencoe, Northbrook. That is just the sequence of things. And I finished Vernon Hills and we just arrived at the Highland Park Parade. Literally just arrived as the, the shooting started. I was uh, talking to my team, uh, trying to connect with them uh, before they started marching in the parade. Uh, when when my team leader said shots been fired, so everyone was kind of scattering and, and trying to get to safety. I had no idea uh, what was happening. I mean, you know, my first thought is that a couple of uh, young people got into a fight and there might have been a couple of shots fired. Uh, what we know now is that a deranged young man climbed a ladder to a rooftop and fired 83 rounds in less than a minute, murdering seven people, wounding 41 others, and traumatizing our entire community. And it is still very much traumatized. But the uh, this is a community that uh, is strong and is close and is uh, working to uh, uh, navigate its way through this tragedy. Um, but I think it's a tragedy that resonated across the country because it was the 4th of July, whether it's a suburban uh, community north of Chicago or a large city like Chicago or rural communities around the country. Everyone celebrates the 4th. Everyone identifies with families getting together, parents, children, grandparents, uh, and celebrating. And that was shattered on uh, July 4th of this year. Yeah, Jared, I had plenty of friends as well, obviously living pretty close as well. We, we were thinking about going to the parade, opted last minute not to go. So, yeah, horrific. And and uh, here in Chicago, saw you on the news a lot that day, uh, Congressman, and um, thoughts and prayers, obviously, still with, with the victims and their families um, as they continue to deal with, with the fallout and the trauma um, that's ensued. Congressman, a little bit about your background, I think our listeners would find really interesting. Before you got into politics, you know, I remember you as sort of a Jewish community lay leader for many years, you know, active with APAC, local Jewish Federation. I think you were a national young leadership cabinet alum. I don't know if you're the only cabinet alum ever to serve in Congress. Maybe Kathy Manning was in cabinet. I'm not sure. We've interviewed her before. Do you think you're the only cabinet alum? It's possible. I don't uh, know. Kathy is a cabinet alum. Oh, uh, okay. Deutsch. Ted Deutsch is now a cabinet uh, Congress alum. alum. Right, right. Uh, a double alum. Uh, a double, <laughs> right, alum. double alum. Double alum. Well, there you go. So tell us more about that time of your life. How did those Jewish communal experiences prepare you or, or maybe didn't prepare you for what you're dealing with today as a member of the House of Representatives? Yeah, I know, Richard, it totally prepared me. And I'll, I'll go back even further. In high school, I was a youth group youth group president. In college, I got involved in APAC and, and then after school involved in the community. Uh, probably the core of that was Jewish Federation of Chicago. Uh, that is the the big group in Chicago. They have a young leadership division uh, of which I was an officer and uh, made a lot of friends. And obviously that led to, to young leadership cabinet and, and the Washington conference, uh, a trip to Poland and Israel with Deborah Lipstadt uh, in 1990. I mean, all of these things come back and, and get connected and re right. reconnected. Um, I was the chair of the Chicago Alliance of Latinos and Jews for four years because of my commitment to building bridges and making those connections. And again, in Congress, those relationships pay off, uh, as, as well. Uh, American Jewish Committee, ADL, you can just run down the list. But the cabinet connection is the direct, direct link to Congress because in 2000, uh, APAC uh, started something called New Leadership Network and reached out to cabinet members. We were part of the founding class in, in, in 2000. Um, I was uh, paired with Baron Hill, a, a member from Indiana, to talk about the importance of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Learn not to have a just a, a connection with the, the member, but to know the staff. Uh, his staff went on to work uh, in, in many different offices on the Hill, continued to work with Melissa Bean. And in 2010, it was Baron and Melissa who came to me and said, hey, you should run for Congress. And uh, that, that's the direct link. But it, 
It was also uh, the folks on their teams who, when I got to Congress, helped me learn how to navigate, build my own team. Uh, so all those connections pay off, and, and that ultimately leads in Congress of being on Foreign Affairs on the Middle East North Africa Committee, helping organize the anti-Semitism Task Force in 2014, joining the Holocaust Museum Board in 2016, and ultimately now uh, chairing the Abraham Accords, bipartisan, bicameral Abraham Accords Caucus uh, as we continue to work for ways to, to find peace in the region. Congressman, tell us, you know, APAC's gone through some pretty historic changes in the last 18 months. Uh, how do you, you know, as someone who has some history, both as a lay leader in APAC and, and somebody who was very involved, but now as a member of Congress who gets lobbied by APAC, how do you view those changes? And uh, if you want to say, if you think they're good or bad, but you can also not answer that question. I, I understand if you don't want to, but uh, well, how do you view that, those changes? Let me start more broadly, just the importance of uh, lay leaders from around the country, Jews and and non-Jews alike, uh, talking to members of Congress and and helping educate uh, members on the importance of the U.S.-Israel relationship. You know, we we say it all the time, Israel is our most important ally in the region, uh, one of our most important allies in the world. Uh, And members, you know, we have, you know, lately it's been as much as 25% of the Congress is turning over every couple of years. those contacts, those relationships are critically important. I learned that through my decade of working with uh, members of Congress uh, 20 years ago and before. So um, that's crucial. I think APAC understanding that um, uh, having members of Congress, not necessarily who agree with everything uh, that Israel does, but understands the importance of the relationship. It's a spectrum. Uh, uh, support for Israel in Congress has always gone from the, the left to the right and, and the other way, irrespective of who's in charge, uh, making sure that uh, we are supporting uh, members on both sides of the aisle who um, are willing to work together to, to work with our allies and, and work to both address security issues, but also address opportunities for peace and do it with uh, eyes wide open. But from a, a, a place of, of knowledge, that's a critical role that APAC plays and, and hopefully will continue to play. Congressman, Rich and I started this podcast. Our first episode was actually January 8th, 2021. Um, and the idea is that if a former Trump guy and a former Obama guy could get on a podcast and have a civilized conversation, then there there could be hope for the Republic. Um, your seat is one that's been historically viewed as a swim di- swing district. Could you talk a little bit about your bipartisan relationships and the state of bipartisanship in in Washington today? Yeah, well, you know, you hit it on the on, on my district. My district is, is and I think always will be a swing district. Uh, people living in this district tend to uh, be in the in the middle, whether it's center left, center right. They're in the middle. They're uh, people. I I have always said I'm committed to working with anyone as long as they come to the table with an open mind, bring ideas, and a commitment to work together. Uh, I've done that before I was in Congress. As, as long as I am in Congress, I will continue to do that. And I think I get a lot of support across my district. Um, and part of that is being able to talk to each other. Uh, I have a, a saying. I, I raise my kids with this idea. I, I've practiced it in my professional career as well as in politics. I don't have to prove you wrong to be confident of my beliefs. I'm not certain of what I know, not to listen to what you have to say and maybe learn and and move from where I am. And if you have that philosophy, you can work with anybody. And I I do. I'm very proud of of my relationships uh, across the aisle um, in Congress. In fact, my first terms, uh, one of the people I did more 
bipartisan legislation with than any other Republican was Mark Meadows. We, in 2014, we introduced the uh, Isbala International Financing Prevention Act. Congressman, so, so we've established that you are in a swing district and you like to work across the aisle. But as, as the partisan co-host of this podcast, I got to ask you, what does it say about the Republican Party that, that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who were once considered fringe members of the Republican Party are now being talked about in the mainstream by leadership, being embraced by leadership when they say just some crazy stuff. Yeah, it's a it's a scary moment for our country. Uh, you know, my, my my closest friends and allies in the Republican Party are choosing not to run folks like Fred Upton and John Katko or losing in primaries, Jamie Herrera Butler and, and Peter Myers. Uh, these were people who I worked very closely with. I'm part of the Rodney uh, Davis, bipartisan. Illinois. Rodney, yeah. Rodney Davis yeah. from Illinois. Uh, Rodney and I came in together in 2012. Um, you know, part of the the Problem Solvers Caucus, uh, a group of, of Republicans and Democrats committed to working together. The challenge is that um, folks who are more interested in theater, more interested in um, uh, rabble rousing, and and less interested in problem solving. Uh, are getting the the press, getting the the spotlight, and uh, as people rally behind them, uh, voters are, are unfortunately chasing away uh, individuals who are are less dramatic but but more productive. And we need to work together. And uh, Richard, you may know or will be happy to hear. I've been working very closely with uh, Mark Kirk. We've developed a very close relationship over the years, um, and are, are lately you know trying to. Uh, revitalize his Abolitas program, uh, something that uh, made a big difference in our community. I know Rich has some some foreign policy questions for you, but I want to ask you one last one about sort of the state of the body politic. Um, and it's, it's about Kanye. And, and what does it say about about the Republican Party that the the darling of the Republican Party who gets more eyeballs uh, on his television show gives uh, gives a platform to a guy who just clearly is an anti-Semite, clearly um, is giving oxygen to the worst kind of anti-Semitic tropes uh, and really ushering potentially a new wave of anti-Semitism um, as if we didn't have enough to deal with already. I mean, what does it say about Republicans that they that they, you know, give a wink and a nod to Tucker when he has a guy like Kanye on on his show? You know, this is a scary moment, and it's not a new wave. This wave has been growing for a number of years. That's why we uh, formed the Anti-Semitism Task Force uh, back in 2014, and uh, we're seeing uh, anti-Semitism rise uh, across the country and and around the world. Um, What Kanye said isn't just reprehensible. It should strike fear in all of us. Kanye has more followers uh, than there are Jews in the world, Um, and the stuff he is saying is is dangerous. It's threatening. It's, It's a real concern. It's not just Kanye, however. I mean, we're seeing anti-Semitism across the board. Um, we, we, we saw Students for Justice in Palestine at the University of California, Berkeley Law School, convinced nine organizations to ban any speaker on any subject who uh, supported Israel or, or was pro-Zionist. Uh, uh, and that's being rightfully called out. We have to call it out wherever we see it. When Rashida Tlaib says you can't be progressive and, and pro-Israel, uh, uh, we have to call that out and, and, and condemn it. And we have a former president of the United States who is saying that uh, um, you can't be Jewish and, and not support uh, the Republicans. Uh, Jews run the panoply of uh, 
political thought. Uh, we always have, we always will. As the saying goes, you have two Jews, three opinions. Uh, that's who we are, but we can be, uh, we can be loyal Americans committed to our democracy, uh, support the state of Israel and proudly, uh, celebrate our faith as Jews. By the way, in case anybody thought otherwise, I, I happily condemn Kanye for just what horrible. But it's not just doing. Kanye, Rich. And, and, it's Tucker, right? It's, well, it's not, listen, Tucker has been putting condemn- out anti-Semites for a long time now. I'm no Tucker right. Carlson fan. I mean, you look at like Colonel McGregor and people like that that he has on the show all the time. I mean, it's 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 crazy what's going on. And by the way, if you then flip over to Mehdi Hassan on MSNBC, you can have the other side of this coin that the congressman right. was talking about with a very different kind of, you know, uh, politics. But somehow at its core, you know, the ideas are somehow meeting in that weird spectrum of however you want to connect the dots there. Um so I appreciate your work on anti-Semitism. I know you, you sponsored the BDS resolution a couple of years ago that passed the House um, when the Senate wasn't able to move forward uh, on legislation uh, on BDS from a federal perspective. Do you think there's any opportunities now to reopen some of that legislation uh, on BDS that had been closed a couple of years ago uh, when folks had raised free speech concerns? Um, over yeah, I, I, I do. Look, we, we had that resolution you know, at this point, I forget if it's two summers or three summers ago, but we had 398 members of Congress vote for it. And of the 12 people who didn't vote that day, 11 were co-sponsors. They were absent for whatever reason. So, you know, again, that number of 400, there's broad support for the U.S.-Israel relationship uh, and condemnation of, of those who would uh, boycott Israel, who would uh, seek to um, uh, delegitimize Israel. And uh, as I mentioned before, we have so much turnover in Congress, it's not enough just to make this statement uh, a few years ago. We're going to have to uh, you know, explain to new members why this is an important issue, help them understand the details of it. Uh, you know, some people, one of the things I uh, worked very hard at last time was explaining to folks who said, you know, we use boycotts in the civil rights movement and saying that the, the global BDS movement and their idea of boycott is something entirely different. They're delegitimizing an entire people's aspirations to a nation of their own. And uh, anti-Zionism is inherently anti-Semitism. So I I think we will continue that conversation. I think there's also, we're seeing the rise of uh, anti-Semitism and other issues. uh, And uh, uh, we need to be talking about that. And and Congress needs to address it in a constructive way. And and not Congress alone. It is working with other organizations like ADL and AJC and, and groups that are speaking out and not just in Jewish organizations that reaching across and building those relationships with other groups as well. You know, what, when we first started looking at BDS and BDS legislation, and this is now like a decade ago on Capitol Hill and the original ideas that, you know, eventually became sort of Illinois divesting its pension funds from companies that boycott Israel and then where you could go from there. I never imagined it would come home to our shores. It was always sort of like this European phenomenon, right? It was like, oh, you know, our concern is, oh, the Norwegian pension funds going to boycott Israeli banks, or we have to have some sort of guardrails. You know, we, we provide missile defense. We, you know, we have military umbrellas. We need an economic umbrella for our allies as well, sort of how I always looked at it. It, it is on our shores. We've had Ben and Jerry's, obviously, Um Morningstar in Chicago now under fire for its ESG rating system, uh, apparently embedding BDS in there. I've taken a look uh, under the hood. It, it, it's pretty bad. 
what's going on there, you know, uh, downgrading companies connected to Israel based on BDS criteria within ESG. Uh, so I, I'm hopeful. I, 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 you know, kudos to you. I, mean, I, I think this, this is an area that just definitely needs a lot more work. You talked about the Abraham Accords caucus initiative. Love to hear more about that. What is the caucus doing? How are you advancing the Abraham Accords? A lot of talk right now about Saudi Arabia and the president, you know, reevaluating our relationship and concern of how that could potentially derail, you know, Abraham Accords uh, plus futures. Love your thoughts on all of that. Right. Well, um, starting with uh, Saudi Arabia, it's complicated, like everything else in the region. Uh, and uh, I, I speak a lot and I suspect we'll get to this in a second. What keeps me up at night is Iran, uh, Iran with nuclear weapon, uh, Iran with um Non-nuclear weapons of, of deadly threat. We're seeing what these kamikaze drones are doing in Ukraine. And uh, it certainly doesn't take a lot of uh, extension of, of thought to say what would happen if Hezbollah got these drones uh, as well. So um, I worry about that. But what gives me comfort is the Abraham Accords. You know, two, a little more than two years ago, uh, UAE, Bahrain uh, came together with Israel uh, with American leadership under the Trump administration. And, and established the first uh, treaty between Israel and an Arab country since 1994, uh, when Jordan signed a treaty. Uh, this, this one was different. It was full normalization. And we've seen the impact of that from the get-go. Uh, exchanges, not just at um, uh, a commercial level, businesses going back and forth, investment going back and forth between the countries, as well as a, um, uh, you know, people visiting, but, uh, uh, cultural exchanges, as well as security exchanges and the growth of that. We introduced the Abraham Accords Caucus, introduced the uh, Defend Act, uh, something that would try to uh, unify the anti-missile defense of, of these countries. And it's a big deal. And there's there's new opportunities. We've seen some changes with Saudi Arabia. On the one hand, President Biden visited Israel and flew directly from Israel to Saudi Arabia. That was a big deal. Uh, we also saw uh, are seeing some concerns. Um, you know, I can't say I'm surprised uh, by the Saudi actions with OPEC and, and cutting production, uh, but certainly disappointed uh, because there are opportunities for the region that will enhance security and enhance the economic well-being of all the people in the region and, and increase the prospects for peace. So as we've learned over time uh, in the Middle East, uh, there is no one line to where you're trying to get. Uh, and you're always dealing with uh, forces pushing forward and forces pushing the opposite direction. It's sort of like talking to a rabbi about anything. There's no straight on line. The hand, on the one hand. On the one hand, on the other hand, and then you come back around. Um, so, Congressman, I want to ask you about Iran, because that's normally the question Rich asks, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch it up a little bit today. Uh, so a lot of press statements out um, in April, 18 House Democrats led by Josh Gottheimer joined for press statements, raising concerns about the Iran nuclear deal. You weren't one of them. Uh, last month, 50 House members, 34 Democrats, 16 Republicans, the letter to the president, again, raising serious concerns about the contours of the deal. You weren't one of those 34 Democrats. I look at the names of the folks issuing these statements. I look at you and your background, and I just wanted to sort of understand what was the, the thinking behind going on the record versus not going on the record? Clearly, you're somebody who cares about Israel's safety and security, about the threat of Iran. Um, from a tactical standpoint, when do you decide to go on the record? When do you decide to work quietly behind closed doors? And then I'm sure uh, Rich will have a more hard-hitting question against this, but, but as a more process 
to kind of open up the, the curtains here to understand what goes on on the Hill and, and making foreign policy? How do you make that choice? It's a great question. As you can imagine, I've been asked that question a lot. Uh, the key distinction, if you look at some of the people who didn't sign, like Ted Deutsch and others, is we were in direct, and I was in direct conversations with the administration. Uh, that, that most recent letter that was being drafted, I was having calls uh, with uh, the State Department, with uh, Undersecretary uh, Sherman, um, expressing many of the same concerns, but, but doing it uh, very directly. And, and um, you know, over the course of the last year, having those conversations, emphasizing that, for example, delisting of the IRGC was a non-starter, that it wasn't just... Uh, in this case, Republicans who were going to say absolutely not, but it was Democrats doing it in a, a, a strong voice. But I find it's more effective to have those conversations uh, directly than in a, in a letter to the press or a letter that's printed in the, in the press, uh, rather. So I understand the, the intention. Uh, in this case, I was uh, having those conversations one on one with the administration. Uh, for me, it's it's very simple. Iran can never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. And uh Unfortunately, we're in a situation where Iran is very close, days away from having enough uh, fissile material um, and fully enriched uranium to, to manufacture multiple bombs. They've already uh, uh, enriched to 60%. Uh, it's not a big leap to get to the 90%, plus that's necessary for, for weapons. Uh, the assessment is that um, even though they could do that in a couple of days, they're further away from having the um, uh, the the ability to create a device to deliver that material. Uh, but still, we have to make sure Iran can never have a weapon. That means, ultimately, whether it's it's be before and you avoid uh, military action or post-military action, you end up in negotiations. Uh, I would love to get Iran to reverse its course and its nuclear program uh, without having to, to take... Uh, uh, military action. But Iran has to understand that the United States, Israel, others uh, the, are not going to allow them to have a, a nuclear weapon. And that means all options are on the table, as President Biden has said. Uh, Iran has to believe that, I believe, uh, before they're uh, going to take the steps. Where we are now, unfortunately, uh, and, and uh, it was just reported, I think, yesterday or today, uh, Robert Malley, our, our envoy, uh, leading on these negotiations has said, you know, the JCPOA, Iran is showing no interest to have those negotiations. Uh, JCPOA, JCPOA is not on the table, uh, but Iran continues to spin their centrifuges, advance their technologies. Uh, it, it gets, it's becoming an increasingly concerning situation. Robert Malley, also known as Rich Goldberg's best friend in the whole world. If you ever wanted to call and have a meeting, I'm happy to take the call. It that hasn't, hasn't called yet. Other people have called. He hasn't called. And I, I don't, I don't sorry. Sorry. But, don't mean to digress. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I, I do find the political case for this nuclear deal with the parameters that obviously leaked everywhere just a couple months ago when we thought we were about to have a deal. Documents from the negotiations leaking out. If you, if you look at the contours of it, right, it was already sort of an uphill political challenge for the administration, a trillion dollars in sanctions relief by 2030, no movement in the sunsets, right? All the all the problems before leap forward here, only now the sunsets are more imminent, plus they're going to be allowed to hold on to all the advanced centrifuges, which is why the breakout timeline comes dramatically down under the New Deal. But that was sort of like already a problem for them. Now it's like Iran, the people are in the streets. Like, how do you justify sanctions relief for their oppressors in the middle of people in the streets saying, stop the Iran deal? And then 
the drones are now on the way to to Russia to you know blow things up all across Ukraine and they're having you know lethal consequences and of course the arms embargo in 2020 expired and we could bring it back if we had a snapback of the UN Security Council resolutions but no we're we're holding the door open to the Iran deal still even today you know won't close the door quote unquote and so i just just feels like what? What is the? What is? Is there a, any more? Like, is Rob Maley on some island? I mean, are Democrats like having closed our conversations where they're like, "Yeah, we really think this is this is going to be great. We're going to sell this to our constituents. This is a great deal." I mean, why not just close the door and say, "Yeah, no sanctions leave for this regime. We're with the people." Like, how can you say we're going to we're with the people, but we may still do this deal and give them a trillion dollars? It doesn't doesn't make any sense to me. Yes. So, Rich, I mean, the first thing is Maley did say this week. Um, that the deal's not on the table right now. We're not, that's not on the horizon. It's, it's not happening and at I think this for time, the reasons, at this time, but, but for the reasons you pointed out, right? Because it, you do have um, Iran giving Russia uh, th- these drones. Uh, and I want to come back to, to what's happening with, with the protests, because I, I think they are significant. Having said that, um, and I think it was John Kitt. It was John Kennedy who said, uh, we'll never negotiate a, negotiate out of fear, but we will never fear to negotiate. Uh, I have no problem saying that I am willing to talk to Iran anytime, any place about ending their nuclear program. Fully cognizant, fully aware of what we, the position we have to be in to say that what we give or consider to give Iran uh, to move back and and abandon their program can't compromise our long-term interest in Israel's long-term security. Right. Those are, are, are non-starters. And the, and the problem is, you know, as you touched on, uh, if Iran is allowed to, to start selling its oil again, uh, it's projected over the next decade that they will have uh, hundreds of, of billions of dollars of revenue come in. Um, that is a problem. Uh, Iran having a nuclear, having a, being a threshold nuclear state is a problem. A threshold nuclear state with um, uh its proxies in, in Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, around the world is a problem. No one is saying this is a, we're in a good position. I think everyone recognizes. I think this is one of the key differences from uh, seven years ago. Uh, we are between a rock and a hard place, and we have to find a way to get where we want to be, which is, number one, securing our, our, our interests, uh, securing Israel's uh, long-term uh, defenses and making sure that Iran doesn't have a nuclear weapon. Uh, number two, working within the region to making sure Iran's not a threat to, to our, our other allies, allies of the Gulf. And then what they're doing in their satellite or, or client states. And, and if you look at those states, Lebanon failed state, Syria failed state, Yemen failed state, the human tragedy as a direct consequence of, of Iranian engagement, um, we need to uh, address all of those things. And that doesn't even touch on, and, and then let me shift gears to talk about Iran, what's happening inside Iran. For a month now, a full month, you have seen uprisings, and these are different than anything we have seen uh, since the, this regime took over in, in 1979. It is a real threat to the, to the regime. Uh, but I was reading an article this morning uh, that kind of, the premise was that the IRGC is never going to get in. And, and the, the distinction drawn, which is, I think, important to understand, in 1979, the, the Shah ultimately left when the milita- military said to the Shah, you can't stay any longer. And today, the IRGC is never going to turn on the regime. It is the regime. And uh, so the, the, the stakes couldn't be higher. But the, the slope of trying to get what we want to achieve 
also couldn't be higher. And so it requires, I mean, I'll argue a couple things here. We need to put politics aside, Democrat and Republican, and find a way to unite. As I mentioned before, in, in 2014, Mark Meadows and I drafted and introduced the Hezbollah, Inter Hezbollah International Financing Prevention Act. It's a mouthful. Uh, we need to find ways to do that again. 2022, looking to 2023, uh, the four uh, House members, two Democrats, two Republicans, the four senators, two Democrats, two Republicans of the Abraham, Abraham Accords Caucus, have to work together and try to expand our reach. Uh, we're actually talking about taking a trip to the region to see it, to make sure we're doing those things. Um, the challenges in the Middle East are never easy. They weren't easy 100 years ago. They weren't easy 50 years ago after the uh, 50 plus years ago after the Six Day War, now after the Yom Kippur War, it's going to mark its 50th anniversary next year. Um, they aren't easy today. But 50 years ago, we weren't dealing with a nuclear capable Iran. And they are already nuclear capable. Uh, we weren't dealing with a nuclear threshold in the Iran. And if we don't take steps, they are going to have the fiscal material to be that threshold state. And God forbid we ever face a nuclear armed Iran. Um, we have to do everything we can to make sure that never happens. Congressman, last question. And then I think we'll move into our lightning round and let you go. I've been briefed um, that senior Democrats, some of your chairmen, have made statements in closed door briefings alluding to the fact that let's say we're in lame duck, the administration, you know, reaches a deal with the Iranians, the Iranians finally say yes at the regime level. Uh, Rob Malley gets his deal. There's a submission to Congress under the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act um, transmitting the deal. I think a lot of people assume there would be a vote like there was in 2015 on that deal, a potential resolution of disapproval, but that's an assumption, not a requirement under the law. And I have heard that, uh, there is a strong possibility that Speaker Pelosi and the Democratic leadership would not schedule a vote. There would be no vote uh, on a resolution of disapproval uh, should a deal be transmitted. Would that be acceptable to you uh, if, if a deal came forward to not have a vote? Yeah, well, first thing, I have not heard that. But the second thing, absolutely not. And not just to me, to, to my colleagues, I think there is broad consensus uh, across the Democratic caucus, across the Republican conference, that uh, any prospective agreement with Iran, uh, whether it's re-entering the JCPOA, whether it is a piece of it or a completely alternative approach, um, has to come to Congress for review. Uh, the goals are clear. We can never allow Iran to have a nuclear weapon. Uh, I am open to any ideas that will get us there. Uh, I pray that we can find a path to do that in a, in a peaceful way, working with our allies in the region with Israel, et cetera. Uh, but I also understand very clearly that um, Iran needs to fully appreciate that the U.S. is wholly committed to preventing them from having a nuclear weapon. And that means every single option, including the military option, is not just potentially on the table, but absolutely on the table and, and presently uh, available to us. All right, Congressman, with that, we're going to move into our lightning round where we ask you just a handful of lighthearted questions to get a little bit of a better sense of, uh, of who you are and what you like. So the first, first question we have is favorite Yiddish word or phrase and profanity is allowed. All right. I, I was thinking about this question in anticipation. You might ask it. And I, I, I realized I don't know any Yiddish. Really? First response. Well, wait. And then I realized, but I use Yiddish every single day, just in the course of life, whether it's as I'm sitting here talking to you with things I got to do, I've got the spilkies, 
or um, you know, there's mess on the desk. I've got schmutz. You, you can you can run down uh, the list of words that are part of our everyday conversation, uh, and that's what's so beautiful about Yiddish because the words kind of sound like what they are. Exactly. All right, Rich, you go. Yeah. Fire yeah. away. What is that? Uh, like Amanamapia? Was that, was that uh, Amanamapia? I think that's Amanapia. Someone, that's it's not like, Yiddish. Rich, I'm an engineer, so when you get into English language, that's a, a second language to me. But that, that could be Yiddish. Amanamapia should be like Yiddish. Right. All right. right. Yeah. Uh, favorite place you've ever been in Israel? Oh, gosh. There's there's so many. Um, I guess one of the, the favorite moments I, I've had was uh, we went hiking into a, 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 a national park called Yodia and uh, rappelling down a waterfall with my kids. Uh, and my time, at the time, I, I think my youngest, who turned 28 on Monday, was six. And he was uh, attached to me. I had never rappelled before in my life, kind of fearful of heights. And imagine doing it down a waterfall with your child attached to you. Um, but it takes you out of your comfort zone. But there, there are so many places. And, and usually it's it's in the north, it's in the Galil, and it has to do with uh, beautiful views, sunsets, or something like that. All right. We always ask uh, New York guests and other guests best kosher food options where they are. Best kosher food in the Chicagoland area. I'm going to have to say my wife's cooking. But after that, uh, <laughs> uh, we've got a well, restaurant well here paid. called Ms. Rocky well Grill, right? Oh, uh, Ms. Rocky, Rocky Grill. Ms. Rocky yeah. Grill gets the vote. All right. All right I, uh, so, I can't say I disagree with that. And so if, if you can't answer, it's okay. But because I'm an obnoxious New Yorker, how do we think Manny's compares to Katz's in New York? If you've never been to Katz's, it's okay. But like, you know, uh, any thought on how, how one compares to the other? I love, I love Manny's and actually one of the uh, most... Um, interesting meals I've ever had was sitting at a four top with Janet Napolitano and, and mayor Daly at Manny's uh, and just learning about the world. But, but how do you think the two compare? So I'm going to go with Manny's for exactly the reason you just stated. Uh, I've never been to Katz's. Manny's has great food. The, the corned beef is extraordinary and you get a big mound of it. Uh, but while you're sitting there making your way through your sandwich or your soup or whatever the case may be, it's the fact that you can get uh educated about the world, whether it's with Janet Napolitano and, and the mayor, or you're going to see David Axelrod stop by or, or anybody else. Um, it's a place where you're going to connect with people and, and learn things you didn't expect to learn. So Congressman, I'm going to tell you a two second story because you're a Chicago guy and Rich is a Chicago guy. So we're sitting in Manny's at this four top and this woman comes up with a, a small child and says to Mayor Daly, can, can he take a picture? And the mayor says, of course, of course. And she says, hold, hang on a second. And she takes a picture off the wall and it is a picture of her in the elder mayor Daly's lap yeah. in the exact same pose at Manny's. And so the kid takes the picture in mayor Daly's lap, holding this picture of his mother sitting in mayor Daly's lap at Manny's. Yeah. And, and by the way, to that point, it's a place where generations have been going forever. It's also, it's now the third generation is running Manny's. Uh, right. So it's a family business. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, look forward to, to, to the developments ahead, and I appreciate you uh, you you giving it a steady hand. Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate talking, and uh, hopefully we'll see you soon. And uh, as we finish the long run of holidays, I hope you had a good holiday and, and wishing all of us a, a happy, sweet, and peaceful New Year. You too. Shana Tova, Congressman. Shana Tova. Thanks so much. If you like the show, Help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. 
Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.